everyone. Welcome back to ZachCast. This is Chad Janicek. I'm here with Patrick Lawler. Pat, how are you doing today? I'm very good. It's going to be fun. You spent some time out in the uh, at the ballpark this morning? I did. Uh, we're having some new lights installed at this uh, nonprofit ballpark facility that, that I help run. I'm on the board of. So I was out there being a project manager. I kind of miss the days of project managing. Yeah, I don't. I'm building a, a detached garage slash office right now. And mm-hmm. I'm getting like every time I get to the point of like finalizing a quote and getting ready to proceed, like the contractors, they just go dark. It's I don't know if they're too busy or if it's just like something about the contractors that they, they just are kind of flaky or I don't know what the deal is, but I, I don't miss this aspect of um, of project management. And my wife is is very she's a lawyer, right? So she, like her whole day is just her, like harassing people about follow ups. Mm-hmm. So like she's loving this. She's finding like 10, 15, uh, you know, new contractors every day for, for us to reach out to. And I'm like, <laughs> just reminded of those days where you, you know, like you put out a, rep- a request for, uh, for proposal or something, and you just fielding constant questions from contractors, yeah. many of whom like are, are never even going to submit. So yeah, good for you though, that you're able to, to keep that flame alive. Contractors treat you a little differently when you don't have million dollar contracts, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. So in the, in the city days, usually when you reach out to a contractor with a problem, they typically respond pretty quickly. In the private sector, I, I found this when building my pool. Had a great pool contractor, but they don't respond to you the same way that your street contractor does. So it's just, just a little different. So, well, today we're going to do something a little different. We have both picked two different city-related articles to speak of Chad may have something that's not city related. I don't know. And we are going to hit each other with these articles, these headlines and discuss them on the fly. Immediate reaction. We didn't get enough hot take talk last time with the, uh, the end of the mask mandate in Texas. So we're going to throw out some more hot takes here. Okay. I did hear, I did hear from a few people though, that listened to our mass podcast. Yeah. Yeah. So that's surprising. I don't know. I don't normally hear from people unless I say something really stupid. I almost didn't post it because I felt like, I felt like I didn't quite uh, clarify that I'm fine opening up businesses. My problem was doing that at the same time as you get rid of the mask mandate, because I, from what I've seen over the past week, since this has gone and uh, has been announced is that governor Abbott is not correct <laughs> that we have quote, you know, figured out how to, how to be safe with this. There is a strong demand to get rid of those masks. And even bef- like even when he announced it, people decided to take them off. But, and like our local target is getting a lot of heat because they're still going to have those requirements. Mm-hmm. And so all of the neighborhood Facebook pages are just talking about how they went in there and gave that manager a talking to. And it's just like, <laughs> guys, <laughs> I, I did get some comments from folks that were surprised that libertarian Chad was so pro mass. I'm surprised too. Uh-huh. But so, you know, well, it is what it is. Okay, so number 1. This is an oldie, but I think a goodie. Uh it's on our backlog of topics from the end of last year and we just never got around to it. So, this could be completely out of date, but I think the concept is still worth talking about. In November of last year, there is a uh ABC7 New York news article that says anyone in New York would be able to report illegally parked cars under a new bill recently introduced to the city council and the whistleblowers would receive a cut of the fine. 
So I have we really not talked about this one? I no, remember maybe did. you and I had you and I had like a really good text back and forth on this one, I think. Um this is crazy to me, by the way. Nuts. Like we, we are we are encouraging through what, what would you consider this like mob mentality? I mean, what I would the consider like? it more of like a Stasi mentality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like, go, like East German secret police, you know, getting you to rat out your parents. Um, well, let's first off tell the story of Chad when he worked for the city of Fort Worth. He got to know <laughs> the, we don't call them meter maids anymore, right? They're called like meter. No, they're like, park, like parking attendants or something. Parking enforcement but, officers. That's what we call them. Parking enforcement you officers. Um, you got to know the routine of the parking enforcement officer and you started to basically calculate when you had to move your vehicle every day. So I would call you when you were in your office. You're like, hold on, I mean, I got to call you back. I got to go move my car. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. Yes. And then finally I got the guts to ask you why you move your car at two o'clock every day on Thursdays. And you said, because they hit that area at two 30 in the afternoon. Granted you were a city employee. Yeah. So he, well, here's the deal though. So when I was an intern in the mayor's office, we got a parking pass and you could just park mm -hmm. anywhere downtown and it was, it was fine. But then when I got a job in the budget office that went away and this is before you could have uh, like, you could pay credit cards on a parking meter. It was just mm -hmm. change. And I mean, how much change do you have? And I, I was still in grad school. Like I couldn't afford a, a, you know, a space in a parking garage at the time. So to me, the trade-off, the financial trade-off between the occasional ticket that you would get, which was like $15 at the time, it wasn't, it wasn't outrageous, um, was worth the hassle of having to move my car like every three hours. But you kind of get an idea of why well, I, I get a I've got a ticket here in the same place at the same time, you know, two or three times. So I'm not gonna park it there <laughs> at this time <laughs> of day. And you just kind of move it around. And I ended up moving the car like two or you know, two or three times a day, and it wasn't too big of a deal. And to be fair, the municipal court building where you pay this fine is literally it's right across next the street. Door. Yeah, it was across the street, so you could just pay your fine on the way home. Mm -hmm. and you were you were good to go. So, uh, so, I'm, so not, yeah. I'm not saying that this is like my finest hour trying to skirt the system, but uh -huh. I was I was still I was still a poor college student, so I'll chalk it up <laughs> to that. Well, I, I will say this policy in New York is madness, in my opinion. Like we should not be encouraging people to become parking enforcement officers like the Karenism has to stop somewhere. This is, this is all, that's a lot. So in my neighborhood, there are a lot of uh, retired families and mm -hmm. they have golf carts and they drive around and they'll snag you. If you're, if you have like one blade of grass, that's too high, they'll call the HOA and they'll send their little minions HOA, you know, HOA <laughs> inspector out and they'll write you a, a note. And it's the thing that was stupid about that is that by the time I got the thing in the mail and the one week period for the warning started, like I had already had it mowed. Mm -hmm. So it was no longer an issue, but whatever. <laughs> uh, th th there is a, I think there's a strong, maybe it's just like a certain type of person, but there's a strong, there's a strong desire among certain people to, to kind of snitch or to, you know, just like uphold the rules. Um, it's kind of like the people who drive, just under the speed limit in the left lane and they won't let you pass because they're going the speed limit and you should too. Like you shouldn't be speeding, even though it's way less safe to just to do that rather than just let the person pass you because they're going to end up passing you in the right lane. And yeah, there's a reason that we pass in the left lane because it's safer, but 
I, I would agree with you. This is a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> All right, my turn. Are you ready for this one? Yeah, that, that discussion went farther afield than I expected. So okay, I didn't think that my, my past indiscretions would be thrown in my face. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought everybody needed to know exactly who you were. So here we go. Warning lights to alert the public when raw sewage from the city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania flows into Con- Nestoga River. Random fact here. I believe my grandmother's ashes were spread in this river. Just as weird as that is. <laughs> was there a warning light that went up when you threw it? <laughs> there must have been a warning light that went up. Uh, I'm named after my grandmother. I'm named Pat or Patrick after Patricia, who was my grandmother. Uh, and that's where that's where her ashes were spread with a warning light. But warning lights do alert the public when raw sewage from Lancaster flows into the river. Get this. Their sewer plant handles both wastewater and drainage hmm. like stormwater, uh, which is common in the Northeast. <laughs> they accidentally cross pipes like a, like a train crossing. They use the same piping systems hmm. for, for that in, in older cities. That was, that was more common, but in, instead, <laughs> instead of being able to handle the actual flow, they are just installing warning lights on the river to tell people to stay out of the river and beware of the possibility of raw sewage being in the river. I mean, at least they're doing that. That <laughs> <laughs> seems like the, you know, the minimum amount that they could do. It kind of reminds me of the, um, like they have these, you know, it's like everything is connected to the internet now. Right. So mm-hmm. they have these like lights everywhere. You go to the airport and it tells you how many parking spaces are available. They have these in, in bathrooms now too, like public bathrooms where they have doors that close. And mm-hmm. so you don't have to like walk under and, you know, look for feet underneath the stall. Yep. They just have little lights that sit out uh, above them. So they're green if it's open or red, if it's not seems kind of like that. It, I mean, it's, it, it it's, is kind of like, it's that. a convenience. If, if anybody has ever dealt with TCQ in Texas, on stormwater overflows. I just could I can't imagine the paperwork that you have to do every time this every goes time off. that light goes off. Yeah, if you if you read this article, the craziest part about this article is this happened 71 different days in 2020. Wow. They overflowed their sewer plant for 71 days. That's like it's almost 20%. That's basically it's about 20% of the year. That's wild. Is this a, a river that people like navigate through like do they swim in it what is it I mean, they fish it they swim it but it, i mean it's a it's it's an old industrial river right there's a lot of like old industrial rust belt factories that are on this river and so it's it's probably not the greatest of like epa water it's probably been worse than poop in those rivers then so there you're was saying. lots yeah. of humor when we spread my grandmother's ashes about the fact that because she, she thought it would be hilarious to for her ashes to be spread with this, all the like, toxic sludge, the toxic sludge in this river. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it and I'm not entirely hundred percent confident, but I know this area of Pennsylvania very well. Uh, my family's originally from the Bethlehem Allentown area. So, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. What's your next topic. Okay. So this is the city journal article that says is Texas affordable housing endangered. Um, so obviously we have a ton of people that move to Texas every single day. Um, and one of the reasons is because the cost of living 
is generally lower than where these people are moving from. Uh, you know, we don't have an income tax. We don't have uh, we don't have much of a state business tax as a franchise tax. But uh, the biggest taxer that we have is property tax. And what this article is warning about is the potential for uh, you know, as demand for property increases, the the cost of property is, will increase to uh, to meet that demand. And what they worry about or they caution against is a reactionary response to this in terms of how we tax property. Um, they, they caution against a, a prop 13 style, you know, tax cap or appraisal cap like they have in California, which, which is really market distorting. Uh, you know, you'll have people who have lived in a house for 40 years and they're paying a fraction of what someone who lives next door that just moved in because whenever that property changes hands, it resets. And so not only does that, that distorts the market in terms of, uh, you know, people coming in and buying, but also in terms of you moving. So you could downsize from your house that you've had for 30 years and spend a ton more in taxes and also obviously the, you know, cost of the house. So a lot of people, they're just kind of stuck where they are because they've got that incentive to stay because their taxes are so low. So interesting fact, I looked this up just to see how many people were moving to Texas. In 2019, 582,000 people relocated to Texas based on the Texas Realtors relocation report. That's a lot of people. That's pretty crazy. That's a lot of people. Interestingly enough, almost 200,000 of those people were from outside of the country. Hmm. So a lot of international uh, move-ins to the area as well. But I, I, I do, you know, the, the, what you hear a lot from Texas politicians is more than a thousand people a day move to Texas, right? That's kind of what everybody talks about and says. I, I will say it does seem like housing is getting expensive. I mean, just, but I think that's everywhere, right? Like cost of lumber is going up. Just the overall cost of a home based on what I bought my home for, you know, seven, eight years ago and what it's worth now. It's, it's crazy. So in the Austin area, the average house now costs four hundred thousand dollars. In two thousand eleven, that number was about two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, we should have invested in Austin. So it's a crazy place. But I just I feel like there's a lot of people moving to Texas in the area that I live in, DFW. We have a lot of people from outside of Texas that are moving here, um, and you know they're moving here for opportunity. They may be moving here for you know governmental and political reasons. Who knows? Um, but it, it does seem like we are starting to see the cost of real estate go up. What you would consider old track home neighborhoods that would sell for the high 180s, 190s, you, know, you really can't even get into a track home subdivision now for less than 300,000. So, so is, this uh, gonna, is this gonna force uh, changes to like zoning to allow for more density, things like that? Or we, do we have enough space to continue to grow horizontally? I mean, Shark Town's just posted. I mean, Shark Town's just posted something on this where it was like, have we finally hit the like zoning epiphany? You know, have we finally hit the where it's it's like a forced change because of market, you know, uh, market forces? I I, I don't know the answer to that question. I, I think you're already starting to see in the suburbs a movement towards density. And that movement towards density has to do with affordability, right? If if your typical home in a suburbs and a nice suburb is going to cost you north of $500,000 to buy, 
then you have to find some other ability for a resident to move into that market. And that affordability has really come in townhomes, you know, patio homes, uh, quadplexes, you know, those type of things and straight up multifamily as well. So yeah, I think it's coming. So I'm worried about obviously distortive um, responses as far as the property tax code, because we know we deal with that every, every session. Um, But I think there's a, there's a bigger or maybe a more broad concern with our political reaction to this population growth. Uh, Because, you know, a lot of these people are coming from places that have different politics than Texas. And um, you're kind of seeing this split between the more rural areas and the urban areas. And it's, those fights are all making their way up to the state legislature and Mm -hmm. the state legislature is making decisions now having to make or being asked to make decisions restricting what cities can do so that's that's kind of where i see more of a a potential problem for texas obviously the property tax you know it's already it's already a mess the whole property tax system is a mess but i think it may be even a little bit bigger of a long-term concern i think a property tax system in texas is a mess because most of the people who have all the information in property tax until recently are third parties that make their money on the property tax system being a mess, right? You have Senator Betancourt who writes most property tax legislation in the state who also runs a firm that challenges property tax issues for a living, right? He's, he's a property tax consultant. Uh, I think what we're going to find is my hypothesis, unproven at this point, totally anecdotal. But as we continue to bring people on our property tax system, I am seeing the same trend over and over and over again. And that is over the last five to six years, we have seen a significant flattening or decreasing in the amount of commercial and and industrial values in a city versus residential values. And I think that's because of the carve outs that commercial properties have in the law versus what residential property owners have. My two cents. And, and we're going to continue to see that. So when people, because this argument that, that I've heard for a long time, you know, cities don't raise taxes a lot. Uh, can I say that out loud? I mean, people are always like, the city's raising taxes on me. Guys, most cities don't. And what we see though, is that the residential taxpayer is actually seeing a larger portion of the burden. And the reason they're seeing that is because commercial values either flatten out or decline And the city is just collecting the same amount of revenue plus new value that they collected in that previous year. And so because of that, you just have a tax shift that occurs. That tax was being paid for by the commercial, and now it's being paid for by the residential. And and I think that's going to be a bigger topic of conversation. I've had that that conversation with a few legislators, and it's it's perked because they hear the same thing and they don't understand. They put all this new legislation in place, right, that caps property tax growth and they're still getting beaten by residents about property tax growth. And I'm trying to tell them it's because their taxes are actually going up at a higher rate than the taxes on that grocery store or that Lowe's home improvement are. And that's independent of any incentives, which are more commonly found on commercial properties than on residential properties. It it has absolutely nothing to do with the incentive side. Well, I, what you're yeah, what, I, I think it's yeah. a valid point that you made. You yeah. need everybody to hear that point, but and 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 I'm I'm just putting an exclamation park on yeah. that. Oh, the, ex, exclamation park. Park. Yeah. Point. Sure. Park. Yeah. Sure. Why not? 
there is a a shifting effect of the incidence of property taxes if uh, as commercial properties are incentivized, right? I mean, the big, yeah. That, that's not necessarily making the residential properties get higher. Those are other things you're talking about in the actual code, which dictates how these properties are appraised. But if a city needs to raise X amount of dollars and 10% of their commercial value is incentivized, it has to be made up somewhere, correct? Right. But what I'm saying is that may be the case, but that's not the proximate cause for what you're talking about. That's that's correct. not the proximate cause for the overall just shifting to residential properties. No, the proximate cause for the overall shifting is the legislature has provided carve outs. The Supreme Court has provided dark box theories, and now in Texas, the business community has better leverage. Now, the big problem with that from a from an equity standpoint is that commercial properties are making money off their property, whereas residential properties don't make money off their property. There's no cash flow unless you're renting it, right? I own my house. Well, I have a mortgage, but I, you know, I own it. I'm not making a cash flow on the equity that's, or like the 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 valuation increases until I actually cash out and get that capital gain, but I'm paying more in property taxes each year on it. Right. So unless my income is increasing, I, I, my ability to pay those increased taxes is diminished, but in commercial, it is different because there is a revenue stream that's associated with that property. So if prices need to go up to pay those bills, there's, there's just more flexibility to, to handle those cost increases. But what you're saying is those carve outs and those uh, those those little uh, intricacies of the tax code are not convalescing <laughs> with that ability to pay. Correct. Well, two two quick things before we wrap up this this topic. One, disclosure. I think we both would agree with this. We don't like property tax. We don't like taxing wealth. Right. I mean. I don't like taxing where people can put their money from a wealth generation standpoint because it discourages the investment in somebody's property because it will increase their taxes continually in the mm-hmm. and into perpetuity. Yeah, right? and then you have to do things like have until senior, they sell the you property. Have, you have like an over sixty five freeze where your your tax taxable tax bill is frozen because once you hit sixty five, more more people are retiring. They're not working. They, their income is more fixed. So they're spared the burden of the increasing property values. And we kind of recognize this, but instead of, we just kind of put a bandaid over it instead right. of reassessing how the whole system works. Well, we just, we create artificial fixes that actually have other consequences down the road. Right? So second thing, just so everybody gets a clear understanding of exactly what I'm talking about here. Let's say a city brings in $100 million a year in revenue, and I'm just using really easy numbers, and 50 million of that comes from commercial, 50 million of that comes from residential. Say that's 2020, right? What happens is, is the city still at the no new taxes rate is going to be able to bring in $100 million of revenue. But the next year, because of the loopholes that are in our state statutes and the Supreme Court precedent that's been set, Commercial may only collect $45 million in revenue to the city, but the city goes and collects $55 million, so five additional million, 10% more from those residential houses. Now, the problem is, is that really over like the last, at least what I can see at this point, what we're starting to see anecdotally, 
is that continually chips away. It doesn't stop. And it starts to compound on itself. And the cities come out there and they say, we're not raising taxes. We are collecting the same amount of revenue from existing properties that we collected last year. And the residents are screaming, but no, my taxes went up four or $500 a year. We're just shifting the taxes from that commercial side to that residential side. And some would say, look, a, a tax on a commercial business is, is going to get passed along to the consumer, right? And, and I, I would agree with that somewhat, but I would also say the consumer has the option to buy the product. Yeah. Generally speaking, I, I am not a fan of like all things equal business taxes generally, because those things do get passed on to either the consumers or to the people who own the company, which especially for large publicly traded companies is investors. But you're just talking about the incidents of the tax, right? Like, so, correct. you know, a grocery store is paying the tax bill, but the customer is actually paying it when they buy their groceries. It's, uh, it's no different than saying, I don't have to pay property taxes because I, I rent an apartment. Well, the apartment owner is paying the taxes and that's passed through to your rent. So like, I, I do agree. And that's, I mean, it's one of the problems with property taxes. There aren't really, I mean, there's no tax system that can kind of get you away from, from that. But I, I don't want to like uh, backtrack totally on what I said here. I agree with you. I don't like, uh, I don't like business taxes at all. I think, I think they're, they're just a way to shift the actual incidence of tax to someone else so you don't feel it. But that being said, if you do have a property tax, at least commercial properties have a mechanism to cover the increase in cost, that's increase in taxes based on the value of their property going up, right? Which is something that you don't have a lot of control over. But when we allow things like dark box theories and legislative loopholes to remove that, they are both shifting the tax incidents to the consumer and pocketing the additional profit or right. margin, right? They're getting, they're double dipping. And, and I think this is the conversation that's not being had specifically in Texas that I'm telling you folks, when we've got 40 cities with property tax information, we're, we're going to start digging into the data and we're going to start looking at this. And we've, we've already seen this with a number of the communities that we've onboarded. And it, I've started to have this conversation with people outside of the Zach world that are legislators. And, and I, I spoke to a, a County Republican chair the other day and, and I, you can see the light bulb go off because it's everybody's trying to figure out how does a city pass the no new tax rate, but people's property taxes still go up because it's all based on the effective tax rate, which is just an average. That's correct. But that on average, here's my, here's the tax rate that I need to collect the same amount of revenue. Correct. But that doesn't mean that every individual person is paying. It's like, it's a stuff. It's a false sense of security that no one is actually going to have to pay more taxes because the total amount of revenue would stay the same. I, I agree a hundred percent with that. And, but I think what's gotten lost in that conversation when people have that is that's used as the excuse for why somebody's taxes are going up. But the problem is, is the whole street, the whole neighborhood, the whole city's residential base is paying more. No, and the whole commercial base is paying less. Right. And we also have this convoluted system where you have I mean, I, I don't have a solution to necessarily make it better you know, off the top of my head that I can just kind of throw out there to you, but you have an appraisal district who's supposed to be appraising value properties at their market value, and they have restrictions on how they can do that. Mm -hmm. 
then you have the actual taxing districts that just take the market value that they get from the appraisal districts and they apply a tax rate to it. And then you have the state that's setting the overall architecture of how this works. Well, we don't like the end result, which is that my tax bill goes up. So, and we don't know why it went up because there's so many different actors and the whole system is kind of confusing to the average person. So all we do is we go to the state and then they, they make it more complicated to try to address this one issue. And it just has this compounding effect. I'm going to say it again and again and again. The guy who writes these bills makes his money on this. Senator Betancourt runs a company that makes money fighting commercial tax appraisals. Kind of reminds me of- uh, Wake was up. It, was it the Speaker of the House in Illinois who owned like the largest- uh, property tax arbitration firm in the state. Yeah, I think it was Illinois, if I remember. Yeah, yeah. I'd have to go back and double check. All right, last either one. way, either you way, ready? go ahead. Okay. If we don't get comments from that one, I don't know what we get comments <laughs> from. And I, and I think that's the first time I've brought this. Up. I've brought this up to you twenty times, right? But um, I just the, the more I see it, that every time we import a client into property tax, I see it over and over and over again. It just it it festers me even more. Okay, here we go. Next topic. So the city of Denton is suing ERCOT, back to last week's topic, <laughs> after receiving, are you ready for this? Do I have a pen? Do I have a pen to drop? Hold on. A $207 million bill. Just for the one week. Two days or for- three days. I think it was like three days in this article. Now that's, that's more... If I remember correctly, that's more than they spent in the entirety of 2020 on wholesale power. I think this is significantly more than they even expected it to be. That was the one that was 2020. That was their estimation mm-hmm. that they were going to pay. And this is, this is the reality. So I, I know another city that estimated that their bill was going to be right around three and a half million. And it actually came in at right at 6 million. And again, that's just for the week of the outages. And that probably dwarfs what they paid in the prior year, the entire year. That is correct. Okay, so, yes. so they're suing ERCOT on what grounds? Lawyers for the city claim ERCOT is illegally passing on the cost of power during the outages to cities. So this, so would be, this would be cities that have their own electrical departments. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So in, in the state of Texas, you have the you have the unregulated areas that are retail electric providers that you can go out and get any retail electric provider you have, you want, or you have areas that are still co-opt regulated utilities, co-opt and muni owned uh, utility systems. Right. So, and those are some of the ones that have gotten hit the hardest in this process because there's no retail electric provider in the middle to go bankrupt. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the taxpayers on the hook. Now I will say that, in the regulated world, so in the co-op world, there's a number of co-ops that are that were a part or had ownership in what was called Brazos Electric, which was a like a transmission energy buying company that really worked out for them because they figured out a way to protect themselves from these high bills. Whereas these munis didn't have that. These munis were actually buying directly from electric generators. The co-ops, so like co-serves of the world, which is maybe your electricity provider, Tri-County. Tri-County. Yeah, Tri-County Electric. They did something that was brilliant. They actually set up another company called Brazos Electric, who was in charge of getting the power to the co-ops. And what they did in order to protect their 
customer base is they just bankrupted Brazos Electric and said, ha ha, now come get the money, right? And, and so that obviously that's going to create this legal process to renegotiate all these electric bills. Uh, and to be fair, there's actually been an audit by the internal auditor at the PUC and ERCOT, which came in and said that ERCOT left these prices in place for so long that I, I believe it cost the state, uh, the ratepayers almost $65 billion in additional electricity costs that they should so, have been. Bearing. So this might be a stupid question, but ERCOT sets the wholesale prices. So ERCOT took special action because they needed electricity on the grid mm-hmm. to go ahead and set the price at the, at the point maximum, which was $9,000 a kilowatt. Sorry, a megawatt. Let's get that right. $9,000 a megawatt. And there was like twenty four dollars to $28,000 a megawatt in auxiliary fees. So it wasn't only that. There were like these crazy auxiliary exorbitant fees that were hit as well, which I've talked to a couple of legislators and they're like, that shouldn't have even happened. But ERCOT was so desperate for the grid not to crash that they pegged the price as high as they could. Actually went to the PUC and got approval to peg the price higher. And, and then left it there significantly longer than they needed to because power generation was coming back on and they left it there for another couple of days. Hmm. Thoughts? So how did that affect people who, or cities who already had long-term wholesale contracts? Because I mean, a lot of cities will hedge if for you know multi-year, at least multi-month contracts for specific price points. Now, I know a, a lot of these retail providers uh, around the middle of February, those contracts were running up anyway. I don't know if that's like an industry timeline or what, but would, would they have been as affected if they had hedged for some longer period of time? So, or was that, uh, was that uh, independent of any kind of previous agreements for, for those prices? Is there some kind of so, get out of jail free card for these wholesale providers where if it really hits the fan that they're not going to be stuck at these low prices. So I, I will tell you, there's, there's a, a couple different scenarios that happened here. Let's talk about the good one first. The co-ops that were in the lower Colorado basin, right? And the munis that were in the lower Colorado basin. So like Blue Bonnet Power, Brenham Electric, uh, some, of, some of those providers there that, that purchase power off of LCRA, right? So that like that Austin area, um, your homeland, right? They, because of the way LCRA generates power, uh, there's a lot of hydroelectric mm-hmm. involved in that, a lot of other things. They were not impacted by the cold weather as much. LCRA was able to provide the level of power to those co-ops that they were uh, that they were contracted to provide. What happened in these cases is, yes, these governmental entities had hedge agreements. And I'm taking this from multiple conversations that I've had uh, with city officials. So a lot of cities in North Texas that are munis, or a number of them, uh, you know, they contract with the larger municipalities like the Dentons or like the Garlands, right? Garland had a, you know, wholesale contract with a, a generator, but that generation site went down. So they had to buy from someone else. So they had to buy from the open market. Yeah. And because they had to buy from the open market, they didn't have their contractual guaranteed price. Everybody got impacted down the line those dominoes started to fall. That didn't happen in that LCRA basin because LCRA was still providing that power. They still had to cut back because of ERCOT, 
but LCRA was actually providing the power necessary to those generators. Yeah. So this is an interesting, um, an interesting chain of events. Rolling blackouts were instigated, which we think there there was an element of that based on the the, the fact that a lot of these retail providers were were over leveraged and were going to go out of business if they were having to pay hold these wholesale prices, these market prices. So it seems like ERCOT was trying to protect them, but kind of disregarding the municipally owned electric providers. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Or at least is that is that maybe Denton's argument? I, I think Denton's argument is, is that, um, I mean, it's almost like a governmental immunity argument, right? Like, we're a city, we have to provide this service. We're a governmental entity, so we're almost, I mean, couldn't, <laughs> I, always, I always thought, couldn't you just condemn the power plant in an emergency situation? Eminent domain, almost? Yeah. I mean, it, I, I just think Denton's argument is, is that there was a third party here that got in the way of our governmental authority. And so therefore they are responsible for these costs. Had they not been in the way of our governmental authority, we would, would have been able to provide this service regardless. At, at a more reasonable. At a more fee. reasonable rate. Yeah. Well, that's a question that's though. The, if prices, that's the deregulation argument. If prices were not pegged so high, would people have been willing to provide that wholesale power to us? I mean, the average price of electricity in the month of February, besides these three days, was $23.73 per megawatt. So I think at $2,000, not $9,000, people enough, yeah. would have been willing to provide the power, right? Right. At $50, they would have been willing to provide the power. The fact is, I'm not sure $9,000, and you know, look, this remains to be seen, but I'm not sure pegging it at $9,000, that was straight up market manipulation. I'm not sure the market needed that. But that doesn't that count, uh, hit against the idea that our electrical market is totally unregulated or deregulated? Oh, I mean, it's... Right, if ERCOT can say, no, this is actually going to be the price, irrespective correct. of what the market may have otherwise set it at. Correct. If they hadn't meddled and the market set it at 2000 then Denton would have paid you know, 80% less. That's correct. And, and I think, and if ERCOT would not have allowed the exorbitant auxiliary fees that have been charged per megawatt as well. I mean, that's, that's the thing is it, but can you prove it? (laughs) (laughs) Right. But ultimately at the end of the day, this argument's not over. I think there's going to be a bunch of lawsuits. There's going to be a bunch of settlements. When you're talking about 200 and something million dollars, what are you going to do? Stop sending electricity to the city of Denton. If I'm Denton, I don't pay a dime. I mean, why would I pay anything at this point? I, I just, I don't understand it. Um, if they're buying the power directly from those wholesalers, it didn't cost those energy users 200 or those energy providers $200 million to provide that power to Denton. Let's be reasonable. They didn't go out because they didn't want to be in the market because the market didn't make money. They went out because they didn't take care of their business. So what you're saying is they should just treat this like a medical bill. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> Don't pay your medical bill until it goes to collections. Negotiate 30 to 40% less. But in this case, you should be negotiating like 80 to 90% less than your actual bill, right? That's that's where I'm going there. Okay. I got one more wrap-up topic that's unrelated to anything that's relevant to this podcast. I promised only four things. Four things that are relevant and then one okay. thing that's stupid that we can, we can leave on. Okay. Okay. All right. What do you got? So I want to talk about the difference between Walmart and Target. Okay. So you go to a Target and it's raining and they have put all of the umbrellas right by the front door. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go hunt for them. 
Target always seems to know what you're going to need and they make it easy for you to get it. Walmart seems to have zero interest in doing that. So the Friday or Saturday before all of the weather came in, I went to Walmart on the way home from dropping the kids off at school. And mm-hmm. I was trying to find, you know, some like beanies and gloves and things like that. Cause I knew they'd want to go play in the snow, but we live in Texas. We have no real need for gloves. After walking the entire length of the store, like two or three times and finding basically nothing, I encountered a tiny little end cap buried in the middle of the, the cash registers where they're all closed, right? Cause they only have like two registers open with actual people and then mm-hmm. the self-serve checkouts. So buried right in the middle. Well, of- because they, they have like an $18 minimum wage now. Well, maybe we shouldn't go there, <laughs> just, but, but that's, <laughs> there's a lot less people in Walmart now, guys. Well, another thing too, which we can talk about and I can get your opinion on is, uh, I don't, have you been shopping at any of these big box stores recently? I I was at Lowe's this week. Lowe's yes. is probably different. I'm thinking more of the ones where they have the, I couldn't the, find an employee anywhere. Well, at Lowe's. so when I go to the store, like Walmart, for example, mm-hmm. Like it feels like 50% of the people that are shopping are employees that are shopping for other people. There's a really dystopian feel to this whole personal online shopper thing. You get that. My sense? wife refuses. My wife refuses to order groceries online. She wants to be able to pick out like the, she the vegetables. Wants her, and, she wants to touch the avocado. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's so. weird going to a store and most of the people that are actually shopping are employees. We're at a middle of a baseball tournament in, you know, between games. And she's like, Hey, I'm going to go do your grocery shopping real quick. I'll be back. And I'm like, why don't you just order it online and have it delivered to the house Monday? She's like, no, no, no. I, I need to pick up my own stuff out. She's very particular. Yeah. And that brings up things. an even uh, a third. Let's go back to the target item. Let's go back to the target. Why doesn't Walmart put stuff out that they know you're going to need? You're going to be going into a, a terrible winter storm put out jackets and gloves and hats and wool socks and all that stuff, put that in a place where you can find it, get uh, maybe have like a display of space heaters or something up at the front. So you don't have to walk. It's a huge store and you have to walk all around it to try to find something because nothing is located in a, in a place that's easy for you to find it in an emergency. I think in general, Walmart just doesn't care. Right. When it comes to things like that, they just, they don't maybe in summertime, they'll put like sunscreen at the front of the store. You know, if you're close to a beach town, they have like beach toys at the front of the store outside of that, like other seasonal items. Yeah. They, they don't do, they, they don't do anything there. Whereas like target, man, it's, it's more tailored to the customer's need at that time. Just look at their whole dollar section. It kills me when we walk into target, my wife spends 40 minutes in the dollar section. Yeah. Mine too. All right. I, I mean, I'll go to the Starbucks and get get the drinks, and she'll take the kids, and they'll go look at, do all that stuff. But it's like a totally curated section that, for some reason, my family always comes out with like twenty items. We just spent twenty dollars in the dollar section at Target on junk, on ju- <laughs> total junk. Right, uh, Valentine's Day, we have ten heart cups for a dollar. You know what I mean? And they all break within like three weeks. I just, <laughs> you know, St. Patty's Day right now, like came home with. You know, a like little five dollars cats and stuff. Yeah, yeah, cheap, cheap, 
just crazy stuff like that. But you know, they've made a name for themselves that like, that's what they do. That's where they roll. So I find it very interesting that target does that. Um, I will say though, sometimes I just want to be warehoused. I want to be old, you know, go to Walmart and buy my, you know, big old iced tea and, you know, shop real quick and get in and out. It, nothing changes in Walmart. You, you know, it's on the same aisle all the time. And when I go to Target, it changes all the time, right? They hmm. make you hunt the store for a lot of things. We must go to different Targets. Well, I will say there's more, there is more variety in from Target store to Target store. Yes. Than there appears to be in Walmarts. They're more like an HEB. They build a store for the community that they're in. But so every HEB is different. I've not noticed a major change in where stuff is placed within the same Target store. But last topic. Did your Target store stay, by the way? And do they have a generator on that store? I I don't know if they stayed open because we didn't really get out except to go to the hotel. Okay. Uh, And I I didn't go in. Like I know our Walmart lost all of its frozen foods. Yeah, um, I, I appreciate a store that like prepares for the worst case scenario. Like now that I have an HEB close to my house, I know that HEB is going to be open unless they get hit by a tornado, right? They have a generator on the store. That store stayed open the, pretty much the whole time. So my thoughts. Okay. Final pass or parting comment. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this, uh, well, at least the issue with the personal shoppers uh, has exacerbated during this pandemic. But another thing that's, exacerbated during this pandemic is delivery seems to have gotten much, much worse in the past year. And uh, also delivery of things like, like Instacart or Amazon fresh, when they deliver you food, they do an, they do a terrible job of packing it. And this really bothers me because my first job was at HEB as a cashier slash sacker. So you learn the exact proper way to sack groceries and even when I go to a grocery store uh, and I have to go through one of the actual lines with people, like with a cashier and not the self-checkout, I will organize on the conveyor belt in bags exactly how they should go. Like here you get, like, this is bag one. This is bag two, right? Here's all my cold stuff. Just so take anal. this item and put it in this bag and then you're done. It's like, you don't have to even think about it. But when you get something from like Amazon Fresh, I'll have a a thing of detergent, like sitting in a bag with a loaf of bread. And it's like, not only are you going to get chemicals on my bread, but you're going to crush my bread. It's awful. So my wife will not even allow the sackers to pack her bags. She brings her own bags to the store and she packs every last bit of, of the bags before she leaves the grocery store. There's an art to packing bags. It's, it's uh, I think Kroger. You don't put canned goods with bread. That's the art. <laughs> well, you put bread on top of canned goods if That's you true. need to. Yeah. Yes. Right. You put, yeah. you have your walls with your boxes mm-hmm. and then you mm-hmm. have your cans and other heavy items in the middle. And then you have your crushables on top. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the HEB training for how <laughs> to sack groceries from 24 <laughs> years ago. Still in my head. Absolutely. Still in your head. The walls. I can't believe you call them the, that that's actually how they trained it, right? The walls in the back. You put walls on the outside. You put heavier things in the middle. The walls uh-huh. provide structural support. So that when you put the heavier stuff in the middle, the walls keep things, keep the bag from like collapsing in. And then you can put crushable things on top of the cans. So curiosity here, because I I would love to find this for the show notes. Was there like a visual aid that they gave you for this? It might be something that you could Google. 
but I'm, I mean, I'm, this I'm was, curious. this was probably 22 years ago, okay. which is dating me, but yeah, that's amazing. It stuck with me. Well, I think we're going to wrap up Zach Cast right there, folks. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We got to talk about a lot of fun things and have a lot of uh, great conversation. Thanks, Chad. See ya.